Mockingbird listeners near and far, traveling by car and lounging on the couch, walking to the park, moving laundry to the dryer. It's that time again. It's that time where, in between our two regularly scheduled mocking casts, we have the opportunity to present to you something a little bit different. A glimpse of what's beneath the hood of the new issue of The Mockingbird. A glimpse of what could be on its way to your mailbox if you so desire. My name's Ethan Richardson. I'm the editor of this magazine, and I will be your audio tour guide instead of our regulars. I would also not be worth my salt as the editor-in-chief if I didn't tell you right off the bat that if you're not a subscriber to The Mockingbird, you're definitely missing out on something important. Just like all your friends have told you about um, Better Call Saul or the 70s power pop band from Memphis, Big Star, or the delights of making your own kombucha. The nice thing, though, is that you're in exactly the right place to right this wrong right now. If you open up your browser or go on your phone to magazine.embird.com, you will find a few ways to subscribe. You can become a monthly donor to Mockingbird. You can subscribe for four issues or 10 issues, or you can buy a subscription for a friend. And this week, we're going to up the ante. If you subscribe or become a monthly donor this week, we're offering a little something extra. Not only will we invite you to become beta testers for our new super slick Mockingbird app, we'll also send an extra copy of the magazine to a friend of your choice. So just type in the word CAST, C-A-S-T, in the notes section of your order, and we'll follow up with you for the rest. Order up, type in CAST in the notes section, and we'll get you all set up. All right, enough salesmanship. So, at first glance, naming an issue of any magazine, no matter what kind of magazine it is, the Deja Vu issue, is bound to cause some kind of confusion. Are we talking about science fiction, the paranormal, the psychology of the past? And it wouldn't be a stretch for us here at Mockingbird, We've never really been afraid of talking about aliens or vampires. One of our favorite images over the past 10 years has been this Jeremy Geddes painting of a cruciform spaceman with a dove that's flying over his head. Our Mockingcast logo is kind of an homage to this idea. But when we say deja vu in this particular issue, what we want you to picture instead is this idea of repetition. Repetition. Of things turning over in a circular fashion. Of the past becoming present over and over and over again. And part of the reason we liked this idea was that it was useful for what we're doing here in this issue. We're bringing back a whole bunch of this great material from the past 10 years, some conference talks, some early Mockingbird posts, some interviews with heroes who are now gone, and we're refreshing them for republication. Some of these articles you may have heard at a conference or you may have read them sometime before. 
They won't be the same as they were back then. But you might experience this kind of deja vu repetition in reading them. But more importantly, and, and this is the real reason behind the issue's theme, this notion of old stories, which never actually get old, is the whole impetus and reason behind why Mockingbird exists anyway. The old stories of the Bible, the concepts of law and gospel, of death and resurrection, of rejection and rescue. These are the stories that keep cropping up in our lives, even today. I recently came across this little excerpt from the writer Frederick Beekner, which explains just this kind of phenomenon. It comes from his book, Now and Then. And Beekner writes, History plays such a crucial part in the Old Testament. All those kings and renegades and battles and invasions and apostasies. Because it was precisely through people like that and events like those that God was at work, as later in the New Testament, he was supremely at work in the person and event of Jesus Christ. Only is at work would be the more accurate way of putting it, because if there is a God who works at all, his work goes on still, of course. And at one and the same time, the biblical past not only illumines the present, but becomes itself part of that present, part of our own individual pasts. Until you can read the story of Adam and Eve, of Abraham and Sarah, of David and Bathsheba, as your own story, you have not really understood it. The Bible is a book, finally, about ourselves, our own apostasies, our own battles and blessings. And it was the discovery of that, for me, that constituted the real reward. So what Beekner's getting at here is what we are after here in the Deja Vu issue. Not necessarily just from the Bible, but a return to the old, old story of Jesus Christ and his grace. A story which continues to be the only thing worth hearing even now. And in this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with three of our 20 plus contributors. One of these voices you may have heard before on other Mockingbird podcasts is the priest and recently the Spanish pilgrim, Jacob Smith, who describes why your feelings, your feelings about God may not matter as much as you think. Another is the astute theologian, Cambridge professor Simeon Zoll, who speaks much more simply than any theologian I've ever met. And he's talking about the rediscovery of the real doctrine, the real meaning of sin, and what that word has come to mean in today's culture. And then finally, we have the Reverend Nancy Hanna, who has a tremendous personal story about her mother and how God founded this 25-year ministry that she's been a part of in a moment of great weakness. So, that's it from me, Mockingbirds. Remember, the best story is the one you may have already heard. Sometimes you may just need to hear it again and again. 
and again. So can we start by like you just saying like what the like what the difference is between like subjective and objective and what the definitions are there? Simply put, like objective is that which is outside of you and subjective is that which is inside of you. And so how this plays out sometimes in the Christian faith is much of American Christianity has become deeply subjective, especially as a result of kind of 18th, 19th century revivalism that so dominated American Christianity. So basically the validity of the gospel, it kind of functions almost like a Pepsi challenge. I used to be a real jerk and didn't have a lot of friends before. I used to do drugs. I used to do this. And now I met Jesus and my life is perfect. And, you know, I've got a lot more friends. I don't do drugs anymore. And I have a wonderful smile. That is a subjective gospel and versus the objective gospel, which is completely outside of you. And that says that 2,000 years ago, there was this Jew named Jesus who made the claim that he was God. And by his death and resurrection, he has forgiven all of your sins, whether you're having a great day or whether you're having a terrible day. To me, that sounds like that's a pretty good thing. You know, like if someone were to come to me and be like, yeah, so I used to gamble and like go to strip clubs all the time and like get drunk all the time. And I lost a lot of friends. And now I'm like clean and I like myself and I'm I'm doing the right things. I'm making the right choices. Like that would sound to me like a good thing. So where does it get stuck? Yeah, it's not to say that, hey, man, maybe you shouldn't gamble anymore. You know, maybe you shouldn't do this or that, you know, for yourself. But you cannot stake. And the problem with subjective Christianity is that it stakes everything upon my own experience. And it stakes the validity of the gospel upon my own experience. And that becomes very dangerous. I mean, I was raised in the church, but uh, when I was first kind of, um, I had a moment in college where I was very zealous, and um, and I had gotten back to the faith through like kind of a Pentecostal experience. And part of that Pentecostal experience was going out onto the um, giant esplanade. It was called the Mall at the University of Arizona, and witnessing to my faith. And uh, two things kind of happened to me in that year where my Christianity was very subjective. The first thing was, is that, so I was out there witnessing to people and I would, you know, come to people and with the, if you've ever been in Pentecostalism or these extreme evangelical circles with the two question test. And I would come and I would ask people if they died tonight, where would they go? And, you know, heaven or hell. And one guy asked me, well, what if I die in the day? And I was like, ha, 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 ha. But anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, yeah. So, but then, you know, everybody usually says heaven. And I said, well, if so, why? And then they're like, you know, because of Jesus, I follow the Ten Commandments and all of this. And so I was out there talking with this guy and, you know, he said, well, I'm basically a good person. And I was like, well, you know, it's a, because of Jesus Christ. And, and he was like, really? Well, tell me, tell me why, because I'm pretty positive. And I was like, well, you know, and I shared my testimony, if you will, the subjective Christianity, you know, and I said, well, you know, I used to be hardcore partier and I used to do this and I used to do that. And then I met Jesus and, uh, and then my life changed. And he told me, I remember, and it really stumped me. 
he was like, well, you know, I used to be a hardcore partier too. And whatever that means. And he was like, I used to do this and I used to do that. And then like, I just got my crap together. And he was like, so what do I need Jesus for? And I was like, kind of stumped. You know, this is subjectivity. And he actually probably had his life more together than I did at that moment. And the other thing too was, is that, so with kind of this uh, kind of experience, you know, people would always say, oh, did you feel the spirit? Did you feel this? Did you feel that? And what began to happen in my life with this sub- emphasis on the subjective was, is that there started to be some cracks and some like kind of, if you will, old things began to emerge, the boys in the basement. And I was repressing them and pushing them down because, you know, I'd met Jesus and I should have been better. And I was pushing these things down and they began to crack up. And I remember talking to the rector of my Episcopal church and I had called him and I said, you know, this just Christianity is not working for me. His name is Tom Phillips. And he said, well, Jacob, it's not about whether it's working for you or not. It's, is it true? And you see, this is the subjective versus the objective. You know, my life is not always true, but the objective gospel of Jesus crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem for my sins, actually in time and in history, is true. And so while it is great that my life gets cleaned up a little bit here or there, the point is, is that not that Christianity is helpful, but that Christianity is true is what makes it important. This is the ultimate freedom of Christianity, is that it allows me to get outside of myself for just 10 seconds and look at the objective reality that God loves me despite myself. So, Jake, if, if like you think about experiences in your own life or experiences you've had in churches, I know if I think about my own life, most churches I've attended have really focused more on myself and what my life can become or would you agree? I mean, would that's craziness. I mean, and on one level, it's completely unbiblical, too, um, because if you look at the book of Acts, The testimony, when people talk about testimony, according to the apostles, other than one moment in St. Paul where he tells King Agrippa who he used to be and who he is now, other than that moment, and that's because it's an apostolic witness as opposed to a Jacob or an Ethan witness, the testimony of the apostles is never, I used to be like this, but now I'm like this. The testimony of the apostles has always been, essentially, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and made Lord of all things. They're never talking about themselves. They're always pointing people to Christ and him crucified. And uh, this becomes the important thing. I get really passionate about that because ultimately, and this is the freedom of the gospel, is that when your gospel is objective, it allows you not to make a big deal out of yourself. Like, actually, what I'm doing that's good is not quite all that significant in the world. There's real freedom in that. You know, um, gosh, you see where people have done something and they thought it was of significant work. I think of, like, Axl Rose, you know what I mean, and Guns N' Roses, and, like, nothing could ever, like, come forth from that. You think about Lil Wayne's last album, because, you know, or his, we're all waiting for the next Carter album to come out, but it can't because he's thought his previous album was so significant. And actually, when we think what we're doing is really significant, it actually becomes crippling. And an objective gospel, which says there's actually one work that actually matters, well, then that gives us the freedom to kind of progress in life, deal with the crap, celebrate maybe briefly the good things, but deal with the crap in our life and move forward in, a, in if you will, a, a redeemed future. 
Would you say that like a subjective gospel, like one that is focusing on change or focusing on accomplishment, rather than helping a person, it it just gives them more handicap? Yeah, what it does is it does two things. The worst thing that it does is it creates Pharisaism. You know, ultimately, God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. You know, I mean, that the Pharisee in the parable of the tax collector definitely has a subjective. I thank you that I'm not because I tithe 10% of everything and I give a tenth of all of this and I do all of this. You know what I mean? So one, a subjective gospel creates Pharisaism because it dupes you into thinking that you've ever moved beyond step one. Or what it does is it creates despair. I mean, just think about the world of subjectivity right now with all of social media. It's funny, I was on vacation and I was talking to an artist who was telling me about how he actually like posts fake things on his Facebook page because he, uh, you know, needs to keep up with the Joneses. So like he had just posted that he got this big job in another country. And uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this and get really pissed off. But anyway, <laughs> like I've just blown his cover. But anyway, like <laughs> what happens is, is that subjectivity then ultimately creates despair because you think you have to keep up with everybody else. So it either creates Pharisaism or it creates despair on the other side because you're not as far as you actually should be. Okay, so the title of the article, which you and DZ wrote together, is The Subjective Power of an Objective Gospel. And so I can understand how like an objective gospel could be a relief in some way because it's it's outside of you and therefore it's not contingent upon, you know, how you're feeling that day or whether or not you had a you know, a really powerful, quiet time, or um, whether or not you said the right thing to your kids or your spouse. But is there still room for like feelings and emotions in like an objective gospel? Or is it just all outside of you? No, I think um, actually, finally, when we realize that the gospel is objective, it can put feelings and emotion in the proper, in its proper context. And that is not about me, but about the other person. And so, and people around me. And so, because objectively, whether I'm winning in life or whether I appear to be winning in life or whether I appear to be losing in life, objectively, I know that regardless, I am loved, I am forgiven, and I am saved by the blood of Jesus then I can actually have compassion on someone else. I can look outside of myself and um, subjectively love someone else in the midst of their own muck. I can identify with someone in their own troubles, and I can rejoice with somebody in their uh, own recoveries. But the powerful thing about objectivity is that it pulls me up, as the psalmist says, I lift mine eyes up up unto the mountains from where does my help come from? Not me, but up on that hill of Calvary. And that, looking outside of myself, I can actually see afresh and anew my neighbor and, uh, and, and weep with those who weep genuinely and rejoice with those who rejoice. So, you know, you're, you're a parish priest and you spend a lot of your week listening to other people and helping people that are going through whatever they're going through in life. I mean, what does this message look like in terms of, you know, someone who can't get their act together or someone who's continually running into the same problems over and over again and can't seem to get 
get changed? That's a good question. I think an objective gospel allows me subjectively not to be shocked by it. You know, it turns me to, I mean, as what St. Paul said, whenever you focus and draw someone inward, as St. Paul says, like, you know, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should. I should. An objective gospel gives me the freedom not to be shocked by the failures of others, um, ultimately. And to, to, to see people for who they are. You know, I just came back from hiking uh, the Camino de Santiago and I had this profound experience. Um, it was a subjective experience, but it was deeply rooted in uh, the objective gospel. Um, as we were walking along, there were all these people who had like kind of graffitied love wins, which that phrase just makes me sick. Um, and, uh, um, <laughs> because love is already won and, um, and it is victorious and it's at the right hand of the Father. So, but we're walking along and there was this moment and in the morning, I had had like this profound, subjective, personal devotion. I mean, talk about, I mean, and then I helped a bunch of people with their bags. And, and then I let the, the owner of the hostel know that, you know, I wasn't here just on some sort of vacation, but I was a pilgrim, yo soy pellegrino. And, uh, you know, I was like really pumped by that. And anyway, we're, we're hiking along this mountain. We come to this, along this trail, and we come to this huge hill. And um, of course, I was very pious and I was carrying uh, some other people's stuff and my back started to kill me. And I remember just kind of sighing out this giant expletive. And right there was this sign that said, we're all brothers. And there I was like in the midst of all of these people, some of them on a pilgrimage, other people on just vacation. And man, we're all on this hill suffering together. And uh, so an objective gospel allows me pastorally to see people as they actually are, whether they're pilgrims on the journey or haven't heard it and they think they're on some sort of vacation getting better. But we're all in this life on a hill and we're all brothers or sisters. And then so I made my way up the hill and I got to the top of the hill and there on the other kilometer marker, somebody had graffitied, you are loved. And that was refreshing. It wasn't like love wins some sort of, but you are loved. And like the objective gospel reminds me of that in my failure to do good. And the objective gospel reminds me of that when I'm meeting with a parishioner who fails to, to do good. Not, dang, you, you should be somewhere else by now, but no, in the midst of it, you are loved. I like what Paul Zoll says, and this is deeply rooted in the objective gospel, but Christianity is not a religion ever about good people getting better, but ultimately it's a religion about bad people coping with their failures to be good. And this, in an objective gospel, allows us to realize and embrace the, the real condition of our subjectivity, which is stuck on pl- square one. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of spirituality out there that focuses on looking inward and sort of going on the journey within. And the sort of answers are there if only you're brave enough to sort of venture there. And there's a lot of talk about sort of like the power of vulnerability. And it's strange because like on one hand, I think, yeah, that's that's a really good thing. Like vulnerabilities, it, it's it's a good thing to be honest and to like come forth and say like, yeah, this is sort of what's going on. This is where I'm at. But I think what you're saying is that the answer isn't within. 
you, you, you can only get so far looking inside yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, the truth is, is that when we look within and we root our spirituality within, then we make like God and his work a complete abstraction, like that graffiti sign that just really irritates me. Love wins. Like, what does that mean? Like, what, what, what does that actually mean at the end of the day when I'm suffering? You know, um, uh, but we, we, we have a real tendency when we make religion about internal, we have a way of making it an abstraction. But um, the objective gospel, which speaks to my deepest needs, um, is not, because it contains a crucified Jew upon a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and that, that, those nailed hands, that pierced side, that crown of thorns on the head, that's not an abstraction. That is an objective historical reality, uh, which meets me in my deepest and darkest subjective need. In your piece, you talk about that question of sort of, yeah, when, when did you get saved or where were you saved? And, and there is always, you know, this sort of shameful feeling for folks who were like, yeah, well, I grew up in the church and this is, um, but that the objective answer is that, yeah, I was saved 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. And that's good news. That's good news for all of us, you know, in our subjectivity. That, that cross, that hill, actually is the only thing that has the spiritual power to pull us up outside of ourselves. The Reformers used to talk about this kind of, the human condition is curved inward. And we're always curved inward. I mean, every morning, I think this is what St. Paul means when he talks about the renewing of the mind. It's not about like new things that I can do to improve myself, but it's about kind of constantly remembering and recalling uh, that great historical event um, outside of myself that says, man, whatever happens today, however you may be feeling, um, you are loved. And never forget that, Jake, and never forget that, listener. So in your essay, which is titled Hiding in Plain Sight, The Lost Doctrine of Sin, which was actually a talk that you gave at the 2016 conference, one of the things that you're talking about is all of these different synonyms that your students, you know, your introductory um, theology students have for sin. And a lot of those concepts, synonyms, are the ones that you hear in pop culture all the time, like misdeeds or little like sort of delicious things that you enjoy that you shouldn't enjoy. But then you also say that, you know, people have an understanding that it's it's sometimes bigger than that. You know, it's it also describes Hitler and evil and this kind of like systemic corruption that that is sort of out there. Can you just describe a little bit further in the past, like what have your students' ideas of sin been? And then maybe just talk about like what what might be so offensive about the idea of sin today in our culture, given what theology says. Right. So I guess what I've experienced with my students is that they don't like the term sin, or if anything, it just refers to things like you say that are actually kind of fun and not that big a deal. They are at the same time super sort of moral creatures. You know, my, my students care really deeply about moral issues and they, they spend a lot of time thinking about racism and about 
Me Too and about you know just big major problems in the world that are that are really obvious uh, and they're and they're spending a lot of energy trying to sort of fight those things as best they can but they don't call those things sin I don't think I don't think they they connect those things as sort of part of a, a, a broader condition called sin they they think of it more as just problems in the world that that need to be solved which obviously they are but sin is the Christian word for these things which I think has particular kind of diagnostic power over the very things that they're concerned about morally. And so it's a shame uh, that so many of, of these sort of young young people, they don't realize that actually this is a really good, helpful vocabulary for describing the very things they care about, rather than this kind of just a word for judgmentalism or repression or being bigoted and closed-minded. Uh, so that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the disconnect between the fact that they're enormously interested in things that I think of as sin and in fact, they don't like the word and it kind of makes them uncomfortable. You, you talk about sort of, all right, there are these various ways that I could go about sort of bridging that gap, mm-hmm. you know, like making it make sense to them. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those are, why they don't work, and then what might be like a way through? Yeah, absolutely. So as I say in the article, I'm up there as a teacher. I just want them to get the concept, to understand it and not have a, a poor or a confused or a misunderstanding in how they see it. So you know, one, you could talk about all these massive problems in the world and, uh, you know, human trafficking, you can talk about genocide, you can talk about these big, the, the worst things that the rhetorical sort of nuclear bombs, which are which are real, they're real things. But I worry to talk about sin immediately that way is to ratchet the ante up so much that it kind of numbs the discourse and it, and it makes it something, this big, big thing outside of them rather than something that they relate to in their day-to-day life, which is the kind of understanding they would need to actually understand the Christian concept uh, with it, with any kind of depth. So another way I could go about it is, uh, which I don't do, is to go kind of personal and talk about the subtle forms of human egoism and all the ways in which we uh, hurt other people and rationalize it and, and, you know, to get into some specific kind of examples in a personal way that I think they could relate to. The problem with that is that you sort of become their therapist a little bit, or you're making assumptions about their emotional, mental health life that, that it's best probably to, to not do that as a professor, that there are other people in their lives and even in the university whose job that is. And it's, it's not mine. So I don't go there so much. And then, like I said, I could, you know, one of the best ways actually is to start talking about things like misogyny, structural racism, structural inequalities of different kinds. And, and that opens the door a little bit. But they, they, even that, they resist a bit because they think of those as things that they're not subject to in a deep way, uh, that other people are. They're big things that are out there that they're victims of, but, and, and, but they're not things that they see themselves as perpetrators of. And again, I think a rich Christian understanding will give some vocabulary for unpacking why. And so one of the ways you talk about like actually getting through and helping teach the concept is by using language from a different field, from psychology. Yes. So as a theologian, I'm enormously interested in questions about why people find Christianity plausible or not so plausible in the modern world. It's one of the most interesting questions out there, um, you know, the role of religion in, in modernity and all that stuff. And so sin is interesting to me on that front. And I guess what I found myself thinking of, you know, I'm reading all this Reformation theology, which is, you know, I was writing a big article recently on Luther's view of early view of sin and how it was related to emotion and desire. And all the things he was describing as symptoms of sin, of how you understand, how you know that you have sin. He talks about the knowledge of sin comes from the experience of sin. 
the feeling of it. He's describing all this stuff that everyone still experiences. You know, this it, it, these anxieties and terrors and worries about our status before judges and fear, fear of death and these kinds of things. So, so the stuff he's talking about when he's talking about sin is stuff that people still experience. And to me, that was a stark contrast to the traditional thing that theologians today say is, well, sin in a certain personal sin, the way that the reformers or, or, or indeed medieval theologians talked about it as something people just don't relate to anymore. We just don't care about personal fault. And, but, and yet all the descriptions Luther was giving were of things that we obviously are going through, these anxieties and fears and so on. So, that's, so then I was thinking, well, well, what do we call those anxieties and fears today? And I had kind of two answers that came to mind, and this is you know, part of what I was writing about. Um, one is cognitive bias. So there are all these ways in which we know in psychology, ways in which basically people are biased towards their own flourishing towards thinking of themselves as good actors and other people maybe as, as bad actors. And why it's so hard for us to hear the cries of, of, of the oppressed around us is because we're really self-involved in ways that are kind of wired into our brain. And there's lots of description of that in, in the field of psychology and so on. As you know, my wife, Bonnie, is a psychologist, so we talk about these things and she points me to articles and stuff. And so I was like, well, you know, these, these sort of this, this bias towards the self, including in ways that harm others or ignores the plight of others, we have a word for that, but it's all through the psychological language of cognitive bias. But then the second one, and kind of the deeper one, and this, this came up partly because, you know, you, a lot of students these days have, um, they come to university and you have to, you're engaging with them as their teacher um, with um, some mental health problems of various kinds. And in which you're sort of, we're a lot more compassionate about that stuff these days than we used to be institutionally in a way that's really good. Um, it also seems to be striking that there's so much of it, and partly it's more reported now, but you know, is there actually just more of these kinds of debilitating anxieties with students and, and that kind of thing? And so the other thing was, you know, reading Luther and stuff, I was like, well, he's, he's describing things that are a lot like um, depression or low self-esteem or anxiety, uh, these things that we medicalize, that, that now we have medical language for, that, that we, um, you know, if you have an anxiety disorder, if you're fear, really fearful of, of judgment or of things going wrong, you know, that's a medical condition that we have very good drugs for, we have very kinds of therapies for. Uh, but for Luther, those kinds of anxieties are also connected to, to sin, to not trusting God, that sort of thing. And so this seemed to be another area, this area of kind of, we have a much richer vocabulary for describing mental pathology and suffering in psychological therapeutic terms. And that language has sort of colonized the experiences that people in the West, at least, or in the Christian world used to describe in terms of, of sin. So what would be like a worry of yours if someone were to listen to what you just said and then say like, okay, so sin is really just an old term for what psychologists now are saying is a disorder, like an anxiety disorder, a depression disorder, some sort of um, medical problem. Well, I would say that, I mean, so what I'm describing and what Luther was talking about, these are, these aren't the thing itself. He's not sort of saying that the anxiety itself, that that's the sum of what sin is or something. He's more saying these are clues to, to a condition uh, under which we all live and move and have our being, um, and indeed the whole cosmos is, is fallen, you know, um, that kind of theological language. So it's not that the one-to-one -one correlation between the, the therapeutic problems and sin, it's more that these are the clues, these are the, these are the evidence, these are the ways in to understanding what becomes actually a much larger diagnostic uh, category. Um, and so, of course, I'm very nervous, and I say this, I hope, with the care that I mean to in the article, that 
you know, I think the medical descriptions are accurate and true, and more than that, that they're good and compassionate and helpful. And there's again something very Christian about separating the disease from the su- from the worth of the sufferer in a way that that pathologizing our sufferings in medical terms does. And that's I do think that's that's really a very good thing. The problem is that it doesn't have much explain it if you only have the medical language. If you don't also have another sort of layer of language, then it's very hard to see these things as anything other than a problem for myself that needs to be solved. So I'm very so for example, a lot of these these pathologies we're talking about, you know, it's a way of talking about the ways in which we cause others to suffer. I give the example of the children of a depressed parent. Yes, it's it's a really powerful model of describing depression to call it a disease for which one needs treatment. It births compassion and it's it's true. But just calling it that doesn't quite account also for the fallout, the moral fallout, the child being hurt, being ignored, being treated badly, or, or even an anger kind of problem. You know, you could describe that psychologically and medically, but doesn't mean you're not cruel to people when you're when you have an episode. Um, and so sin is a is a category that allows you to understand a little bit the moral valence that arrives that is a consequence of our brokenness. Yeah, it's interesting territory. Like, I, it seems like people tend to get a little bit uncomfortable with, I guess, a psychological understanding of sin because there's some missing element of like culpability or some element of like, there's a lot of talk about shame and, and sort of victimhood in, in our culture today. And and so while this understanding of sin actually makes a lot of room for that kind of understanding, there's also kind of this question mark of, well, what about the damage that I, that I bring out with what I have, you know, with this condition I have? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I guess part of why I'm interested in going this way with it and, and, and trying to, to, to draw a bridge, like you say, between the kind of either the, you know, the, the various kinds of psychological and um, scientific medical language and more traditional Christian language to have a bridge is because um, in theology, you often get, if you get sin, but without any of the feelings or experiences that, that Christians traditionally have associated with it, it's just a kind of uh, epistemological puzzle. So in in theology school, uh, you talk a fair bit about sin, but it's mostly kind of an ep- about epistemic limitation, uh, you know, as in the the how hard it is for us to know stuff, to know God, or has, it's related to finitude language, um, or it's a formal problem about how to make sense of God's justice, a philosophical, ethical problem about God calling us to account uh, for things that, uh, in some sense, he, is, um, he made possible, or at least didn't prevent. And so you get a lot of discussion of, of human fallenness, but it's a bit abstract. Um, and it's get to me that gets away from actually the way in which a lot of the Christian tradition has talked about sin, uh, which is much more existential. Uh, it has that existential level as well. Um, and so, uh, I think if we lose that, then sin is just, it's just an idea. I mean, we, we, you could be a philosophical skeptic without being, uh, having a concept of, of sin. So there's a, there's a psychology and theology professor named Terry Cooper who, has this book and and it's called Sin, Pride, and Self-Acceptance. And he's sort of running through the history of Christian thought and also the history of academic psychology as well, uh, Freud and Eric Fromm and a bunch of others. And um, and he's trying to parse out sort of this understanding of, of sinfulness, human sinfulness, and how in different traditions uh, it's understood in different ways. And um, 
So um, I want to read this little short section and and um, because I think it really has a lot to do with, with what we're talking about here. Uh, this is how he introduces the problem. Recently, I've heard conversations similar to this one between two people I'll call Sam and Betty. I find it very hard to tolerate Jack, said Sam. He's extremely pompous, full of himself, and conceited. Who does he think he is? He really thinks he's better than everyone else. Yes, said Betty, but you know that's all a big mask to cover his real problem, low self-esteem. It may look like he's arrogant, but the real issue is deeper than that. Down deep, I'll bet he really doesn't accept himself. Are you kidding? Responded Sam. That guy has so much self-esteem. I don't think he's insecure at all. In fact, he has something of a God complex. But can't you see underneath all that, Sam? Asked Betty. Jack is like everyone else. His basic problem is low self-esteem, which he hides very well. Well, that's a counseling answer, argued Sam. Counselors look for low self-esteem and always find it. Then they think that is everybody's problem. Of course, people who go to counseling are temporarily down on themselves, but as soon as their lives get back on track, pride will probably take over again. But I think pride is never the bottom line issue, said Betty. It's not the primary problem. Instead, it's a symptom. I see it as the primary problem, argued Sam, and I think this is where religion and psychology often differ. Psychology minimizes the problem of sin or excessive self-regard. I disagree. I think sin is more likely to come from a failure to accept myself than exaggerated pride in myself. I'm sorry, but I find that view really naive. And Sam said, Betty, I find your view cynical. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, are you, are you a part of this conversation? Like, are you in, in your, in your world? Are you thinking about these questions? And, and if so, like, where, where do you stand? I mean, is it, is it sort of a both and, um, kind of conundrum where we are both, um, self-absorbed and self-hating? Um, is that what like Christian theology would say, or is it one or the other? Are we, are we prideful or are we, um, just sort of insecure? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, I think, uh, from my perspective and I think from the, the Christian theological traditions, general perspective, um, the answer does have to be a form of both. That's always such a boring kind of just have a balance, you know. Um, <laughs> that's always the challenge. Uh, I mean, clearly, both both answers are kind of kind of reductive. Um, you know, I find myself immediately drawn to Betty because she's trying to understand. She, she's trying to have compassion, uh, and um, and Sam is is more interested in judging. Uh, and you know, the, the, that's the great thing to the great thing to hold together and to have the right categories in the right case and in, in, a, in, a, you know, in a given moment with discernment, you know, w w which one do you emphasize or how do you understand how the two go together? Because uh, that pride could also, you know, could derive from low self-esteem doesn't make it not uh, pride of a kind or at least self-regard. Um, and there's a way in which even when we're hating ourselves, we're still obsessed with ourselves uh, in, a, <laughs> right. in a way that is, we can't get out of ourselves. But I think 
the sort of theological grammar here, which is very powerful, is that we are all loved and created by God. And that is absolutely always true. It's not only true when you realize it or when someone tells you or whatever. It's the nature of creation that it is loved, it is beloved by God. And that is one of the few things that abides, right? So you never want to minimize that. And so a sense of being unbeloved, deeply unbeloved, is going to tend to be problematic in theological terms. But it has to become concrete. How do we know that we're beloved? And that's where I think if it's just a generic, well, everything's fine. I mean, often you, know, you, are, you should accept yourself because you're fundamentally good. It becomes a kind of cheap way of saying, you know, everything's fine. You're great. You know, you do you. And uh, in a way that just doesn't have diagnostic power over what we do, what happens in the world. It's a nice, I wish that were all we needed to say or do or know. And when in doubt, I'd rather have the, love, the, the self-esteem person than, than the pride person. But the pride side of the picture, the moral valence of sin, that, that dimension, rather than just, the, just the, 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 the compassion and the love, the understanding, it's important because it's the only way that we really fully understand it, uh, I think. And that involves both sin as a larger global condition and one in which we are caught up in particular cases and in particular ways out of our own particular makeup. So I guess I guess that's where I would come from on that. Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading your article, I mean, it does such a good job of making sin not just an important element of sort of Christian theology, but it can't be replaced. I mean, it can't be retranslated and it's sort of the foundation upon which um, everything else kind of makes sense. But in a world where, especially nowadays, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on sort of, okay, we're already hard enough on ourselves. And especially for people who are marginalized or oppressed, they've already got it hard enough. So why add any vocabulary or any concepts that just add to what could be more like self-condemnation or more condemnation? So one thing I wanted to ask you was, what did Luther, what, what did some of the church fathers, what does Jesus um, say about the importance of this concept and sort of like leading to everything else? Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, this is part of why... I always get nervous when we sort of take a, a set of concepts, an idea, a distinction, uh, a, a view of sin, and then we immediately sort of blanket apply it to, therefore, we should, what people need to hear is that they are sinners um, rather than that they are beloved or whatever. I think that there's always a kind of <laughs> kind of spirit-led wisdom and what, what, what's the right thing? What, what's the, and Jesus displayed this, you know, he says different things to different people. He, you know, we, we need to hear different things at different times. And um, so there are many situations where, where the, the word of belovedness is, is what needs to be heard. Um, I think uh, for, I guess, the kind of people who I spent a lot of time with, who are sort of overeducated, very wealthy by the world's standards, um, you know, Western elites of one kind or another, you know, that the, the, the sin part of the picture is, is the part that's missing and the part that's missing in, in their diagnosis uh, of the world. But I wouldn't want to... So I know I can speak to that. You know, um, I wouldn't want to jump too far uh, beyond that. I would say it, it's it's there in in Scripture and with Jesus and so on. I think I think it's also it's just it's not a matter of what we need to hear only because it's also a matter of just what's the case. Uh, and I think it just simply is a word for describing the way things are, even in you know, the worst situations. It's it's still a factor. 
Uh, it helps explain why things get so bad. Um, and we need uh, that vocabulary. I also think it's, it's a route to, to transformation and change and energy, being energized and so on. It's, it's acknowledgement of, of the reality of, uh, of our parts in, in problems. Um, but beyond that, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I, that's, I'm interested in it primarily as a, as a diagnostic tool for making sense of things in our lives that we don't have good vocabulary for right now and also in the wider culture. That's what, that is what gets me so interested because everyone I know who's not a Christian and who's smart and who's thinking about the world is thinking about its problems and has an impoverished vocabulary uh, for doing so because it does, it's not a vocabulary that, that can really make good sense of our own contribution to the problems in unconscious, in subtle ways, in hardwired ways. Uh, while still having enormous total compassion, I think the Christian uh, way of thinking does have that that power. That it has both dimensions at its best, and so I want to recover that. I want to do a kind of catechesis um, for such people. But um, but that that's who I'm really, I guess, have in mind, and my and my students. You know, I want them to help help them to understand the world um, more truly. And I don't want just because. Christianity says it's it's so you know that that that's that's a factor but um I want it you know if it's just not true if it just isn't it remotely explain anything they're experienced then forget it um so it's there's a, there's an element of we're just talking about things that are the case yeah thanks Simeon my pleasure Nancy Yes. Hi, Ethan. Did you get a Did you get a little note from a nice lady saying this call is being recorded? She just said it to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. Well, I'm honored to be invited to participate yeah. at all in the deja vu. I'm very <laughs> honored to be in it, and I thank Sarah Cousins for that. I'm just going to ask you some questions about your piece, but then also how it is related to just your life in ministry and where you've sort of seen it come to play. And, and maybe, I mean, I know that that's kind of what the essay is about anyways, but maybe a good place to start would just be giving us a short synopsis, just kind of set the scene. Okay. The piece is a reflection on a reflection that I had when I was pastoring a person somewhere in the early 90s at my then parish, which was Christchurch, Rye, New York. So I was sitting with a woman whose mother's funeral I had just performed a few weeks earlier. And in that conversation of pastoring that woman, the daughter of the mother who died, it came about that she alone of her sisters and her mother was not pictured. There was not a photo of her in her wedding dress on her mother's wall. Uh, she had been married and and what and had family that had grown up and and so forth, but um, there was no picture of her wedding dress where the other pictures were. And she brought up this wall where her picture wasn't. And I said, "Well, why is that?" And she explained how she was actually pregnant on her wedding day in 1958, and at that time, you know, a white wedding dress didn't go with a, a wedding of that ilk. So she wasn't mm-hmm. allowed to have a white wedding dress. She wore a suit. I think it says in the story. And um, it, it was a difficult situation, but there was never any white wedding dress. Therefore, there was never any picture of any wedding dress or her on the wall with her sisters. And 
along with that went a lot of resentment about the sisters who left her to pack up the mom's home and so forth and so on. But as she was telling me about the pictures on the wall, my mind flashed back to a wall in my mother's bedroom with brides on it. <clears throat> my mother, her mother, mm-hmm. my sister, and me. I was very much on that wall in a very beautiful white brocade wedding dress. Um, and then the piece I I wrote goes on to say how I, too, was two months pregnant on my wedding day in 1965. And I go on to say how my mother had suggested I would not wear a traditional wedding dress. I would wear something simple. It would be a very, because we had a very small wedding organized in one week. Um, it happened on New Year's Day of 1965. And then the story goes on to say how when we went shopping for my dress, I, we were in a wedding clothes store, but mother was sort of looking at the other dresses, not the wedding dresses. And I walked over to a beautiful gown that was on a mannequin and was sort of looking longingly at it and fingering the material. And my mom watched me doing that. And she, as I'm looking at the piece right now, I wrote, she left the mother of the bride dresses and came to my side with a wedding dress Mm -hmm. and said, (laughs) would you like to wear this one on your wedding day? And, And I remember saying, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. And she said, then you shall. So it, mm-hmm. the, the, the pastoral moment led to a reflection of my own where I think maybe I hadn't really thought of my mother as, you know, being grace and practice to me. I knew that it happened, but I hadn't ever put it into my sort of theological reflection world before. So I realized that I had been touched by grace at a very, very vulnerable moment in my life, and it had made a big difference to who I became and my relationship with my mom and yet I'm sitting and I'm sitting with a woman for whom that did not happen and she was a pretty devastated sad person you know I prayed with her Mm. etc etc but I guess in that encounter my pastoral encounter in somewhere around 1993 or four probably like 30 years after my own wedding day but in that pastoral encounter I realized the power of what I have been thinking about as horizontal grace or grace in practice so it's human being mm-hmm. to human being, which I think comes from the grace of God. But my first experience or a big experience of the grace thing before I was a theologian of any type came from my mom. So that's that's a synopsis of the story and what it means. Yeah. The piece originally was in a little collection that we put together way back, even before I was a part of Mockingbird. Yeah. And it's a little, little blue yeah. book. Yeah, called yep. Judgment and Love yep. and Yep. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's funny because we're putting together this deja vu issue and thinking about, okay, so what are the stories or what are the insights? What are the blog posts that have uh-huh. somehow registered with people and have really communicated this message of grace so powerfully? And your piece, it's, you know, it's, it's barely 500 words, but it immediately came to mind for us. And I just wonder why you think that is. Why, why is it, um, why has it meant such a great deal to so many people? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think number one, it's a word picture. I think for people to hear in their hearts, the gospel or to hear anything in their hearts, they really need word pictures. I was actually taught that term by James Forbes, who was my preaching professor at Union Theological Seminary 
1980, 81, 82, who was a Pentecostal African-American preacher, professor, etc. I think there's something about word pictures that go deeper than just an abstract, you know, Jesus loves you, you're forgiven. So that that is the key message that is so healing, that is so um, profound. But I think for me, for my story, to touch another person, the event, the the actions, the words, the, the word picture of, of an actual event needs to be there. So I think that's the, and I've taught, I've always taught that way with the encouragement of my preaching professor way back in the early 80s. And I've found it to be effective all through my ministry, which was about 20, you know, 25 years of parish ministry, active parish ministry. And now, so as a retired priest, I'm continuing, you know, with active ministry. So, yeah, I think, I think that's the main reason. Uh, and I think there's an authenticity. If you're honest about your own failedness and vulnerability and woundedness, that really seems to hit home with other people who are wounded. Um, so it often would surprise people that I would talk about a, a pregnancy, you know, an, an unwed teenage pregnancy. I was 19 when the baby was born. I was 18 when I got married. Uh, and people would be shocked that as a priest, I would tell those stories in some of my ministry days. But I found to do that, to come alongside as an equally wounded, vulnerable, failed person is what enables these things to hit home with people. Then they get interested in the theology and what the Bible has to say and so forth. Um, and that was my experience exactly. This all happened in January 1, 1965. That was the wedding day for me. In 1975, between those 10 years, I wasn't a churchgoer. I divorced and remarried to Ali Hannah. And I was sitting in his family's church in 1975 in um, Belfast, Northern Ireland, which is a Pentecostal and Elam Pentecostal church. And one of the young ministers preached a sermon, a very simple sermon on forgiveness. And he, uh, he said, what got to me is from his sermon was, he said, just to everybody in the congregation, he said, you know, you've all probably really hurt someone you love at some point in your life. And that was kind of the arrow to my heart. My mom and dad immediately came to mind because the event of the unwed pregnancy was scary for them. It was embarrassing for them. And it hurt. It hurt them. It just shattered mm. all their plans and dreams. You know, and I was always very aware of that. So immediately my mom and dad came to mind. And then this young minister said, but the good news is you are forgiven. That's all he said. Mm. That's, that's really all he said. Mm. But that night I did literally commit my life to Christ. I knew something had happened, and that, and I, and I did that. And I didn't know what it meant. I went to seminary four years later. Nothing happened right away. But I think the way I've thought about it in preparing to talk to you today is that somehow the grace in practice that my mother was moved to give me that gift, I think somehow prepared the ground that enabled me to recognize. God's word, you know, from a pulpit, from the Bible, that God, my, my father, God could forgive me as well. And as I thought about first the horizontal grace and practice, then the vertical, you know, sitting and hearing it from pulpit, um, mm -hmm. it makes a cross, you know, you draw a horizontal line, you draw a vertical line, you've got the cross. 
and as far as how this has influenced my ministry, it was my experience that those two words of grace, horizontal and vertical, happened before I was really involved with regular church attendance, before I was under any real pastoral care at all. It all happened before any theological training, which began in 1979. And, and so I think that's an interesting insight. And I think it has really affected, driven my ministry ever since. One of the things that I think is so powerful is you coming to terms with this horizontal experience becoming mm-hmm. sort of a starting point for you understanding mm-hmm. the vertical. Exactly. And, um, but that it doesn't change the fact that you yourself are wounded and, and that mm-hmm. you, you can be sort of a, a messenger. You know, you can, you can mm-hmm. provide, you can provide this message on a horizontal level um, with other people. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that you're, you're a wounded person. And, and in fact, like it, it may right. make the message that much more powerful to another wounded person because you, mm-hmm. you are wounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen, have you seen this? There's, there's this story um, where, where you're, where you're sitting down with, with a woman who's just gone through a funeral, but how else have you seen this play out in this life of ministry that you've had over 25 years? I came up with two memories before I tell you them, though, I just wanted to add in terms of the, the horizontal enabling me to recognize grace from the pulpit. It also enabled me to recognize the word of grace in the Bible. When I finally did do biblical studies, I actually remember sitting in the Union Theological Seminary in the New York Library and reading St. Paul for the first time. I, I wasn't a person who knew the Bible. So I'm reading St. Paul's letters, trying to direct Jesus, etc. And I literally remember thinking, wow, this guy gets this thing I've been given. It's like, I didn't know other people mm. had been given this. I, I literally had that moment in the library. Oh, wow, this guy's a real, <laughs> a real buddy. Well, that sounds stupid. I know that sounds really stupid. I mean, such was my uh, preparation for seminary. But it was like, wow, this guy gets this. And he's so good at telling about it. Okay, so that was one moment of that. The other, and the other <laughs> moment of, I think I was really doing. The other moment of, of appreciating all the, you know, how this prepared me was in 1985. I was just graduated that May from Union, and I was asked to do a wedding for a cousin of my husband up in Brackless Manor, and the young couple had chosen uh, St. Mary's Scarborough to be their wedding venue, and Paul Zoll was the director of St. Mary's Scarborough. That is how I met Paul. We, I assisted him at a wedding of a cousin in 1985, and to prepare for the wedding, we met for the first time at the Terrytown Hilton Hotel for breakfast. And Paul being Paul Zoll spent two minutes on what you'll do at the wedding and the next hour on, you know, who are you? What are you all about, Nancy? And at the end of that conversation, he handed me the one book, the only book he ever published at that point, which was Who Will Deliver Us? And I took it home and read it. And again, I said to myself, just graduating from seminary and not knowing what the heck I'm going to do in the Episcopal Church. Because um, I found none of this this message I heard in the Pentecostal Church, anywhere in my Episcopal Church. So after reading Paul's book, I said, oh, wow, there is one Episcopalian in this world who gets this thing that Paul and I get, St. Paul and I get. <laughs> one, there's one. And so when he asked me to go to work for him as his assistant a few months later, I said, yeah, great. 
because you're the only guy out there that knows what the heck has happened to me. Anyway, that's mm. that. Now, where it's popped up again in my ministry, I thought of two, two stories, two little things. The first goes way back to when I was a seminarian uh, still and doing my field work. I was running an absolute program in Grace Church in White Plains, and it was all kids sort of from like, I don't know, six or seven to 13 who came after school to hang out. They were latchkey kids, meaning their parents all were working. And so we looked after them mm-hmm. until their parents got home. And and there was another, uh, there was a county program in town that a lot of the uh, project housing kids went to. But some of, uh, there were kids that they wouldn't have because they were too unruly that the county program would let them come. So we, my rector's thought was, okay, we'll take all the unruly kids. And then, of course, he turns to me, the seminarian, and says, and you're going to run the program <laughs> because I've been a school teacher. Okay. So in this program, one of these bad little kids um, from the project housing was Lenora, who's about age eight. And one day, she, she, they had a daddy in prison, and life was tough at home. And um, she got upset one day about something and started yelling at one of my volunteers, who was a lovely um, – African-American lady named Carolyn, lovely, you know, <laughs> sort of um, very elegant, lovely lady who was kindly volunteering in this program with me. And Lenora screams and yells at her and calls her a black bitch. Okay. At which point I remove Lenora from the room, kicking, kicking and screaming, this little bundle of rage. And hmm. I took her into the office. And for some reason, it was, it was about to be cookie and juice time. And for some reason, I gave her her cup of juice and her cookie. I, I the, the the kind of normal thing to do would be you're not getting your cookie and juice today. You sit there and be quiet till you come there. That would be what a parent would do. I would have done as a parent. But something in me, and it was the grace motive, motive but something in me said, give her the juice and cookie, which I did. And I remember the rector walking in and saying, what are you doing that for? She doesn't deserve that. Anyway, nevertheless, she got her juice and cookie. And then I just put my, which calmed her down. And then I just put my arms around her and she just cried and cried and cried and cried. Mm. That I, I remember vividly that moment because something in me did the counterintuitive thing, the not disciplinarian thing, this horrendous little girl. Um, and it just completely worked. She calmed down. She was okay after that. She stayed with the program. And a few months later, the kids were with a sermon on Passion Sunday, you know, in the, in the church. And so the kids were telling the Passion narrative in a play that we put together, ho, ho, ho. And which wasn't easy with this group of kids. But by the Lenore was at every rehearsal. She was played several parts, as I recall. So she, she got it. You know, she just, she knew she was loved anyway. So that was number one. Mm, that's amazing. Know, you, now the other, the other story did of an, an adult, now an adult woman, probably in her forties or fifties at the time. And this was about around the year 2000. I was running Alpha at St. Bart's, St. Bartholomew's Church in Manhattan. So I was tending to work with a lot of people who were not churchgoers, who didn't know any theology at all, who weren't sure they ever wanted to be churchgoers, but they were, for whatever reason, curious. So they would come to this thing called the Alpha Course that I was running. And there was a woman named Jean. And her story, as it, she had come among us because someone handed her a pamphlet about Alpha, the Alpha Course at St. Bart's, at an AA meeting. So she was from Harlem. She had um, 
done well enough in school to get a full scholarship to college decades earlier. Um, but that had all blown up and never happened because somewhere in the year before that going up to college thing, um, she had been raped by someone and had the child, a little boy, and set about raising her little boy. There never was any college. All of that bad experience led to alcohol and alcoholism and homelessness, little, really little homelessness, and a really mm. hard life. So here she is now maybe 45, 50 years old, and she wanders in to this um, Park Avenue group. And I remember her just coming to my office and crying and saying, I don't look like anybody here. I don't know what I'm doing here. This is crazy. I said, well, just hang in with this because there's a lot of other people doing this course that don't know why the heck they're here either. And she hung in. And I remember her later saying to me that the the aha moment for her was hearing on Why Did Jesus Die? Talk number two. um, That Jesus had died for her. And I think it was a John Wesley moment. Yeah, he died for everybody's sins and the sins of the world and blah, blah, blah. But actually, he really also died for her. She heard that. And, you know, John Wesley's thing was to realize that if there had been no one else in this whole world, Jesus would have gone and died for him, him alone. And that was his turning point. Um, so mm-hmm. it's that, that, you know, that message that God is pro nobis, as they, as we, are, we learn in Latin. Uh, whatever this God guy is, he's for us. Um, it just, again, it, it completely turned her heart and head around. She was already recovering, a recovering alcoholic, so she had that going for her. But she was baptized, confirmed, became a member of our church, a very beloved member, and in a number of years later was ordained a deacon of the Episcopal Church, is now retired. She found her son, who she could have lost track of, and she's now in a retirement home near her son, who lives in California somewhere. I mean, that is how that story wow. ended up. It's an amazing wow. and beautiful story. And our whole congregation watched this evolution of her becoming one of us. And then the whole diocese, you know, watched her become a deacon and, and work effectively as a deacon. And mm. she lived in one of our religious communities. I forget which one. But anyway, to me, that was, that was hearing the, the word about Jesus somehow directly to her heart. But it may be, I think, that with my stories, because I always told the, I pretty much told the pregnancy story, not the wedding dress story, but the, the um, event of my early marriage and so forth. I told a lot of that in my teaching. And yeah, I think maybe me being a wounded healer enabled her because she felt so out of place at St. Bart's, which I, as I say is Park Avenue and 50th Street. She Her world was Harlem. I think that enabled her to hang in there and to bridge what seemed a big gap and then realized she totally fit among us, in fact. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think the wounded healerness, it, it, it helped people just hear a preached word. You know, I was just standing up preaching as many of us do on a Sunday about Jesus. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's like that's it's the put, other one. It puts skin on it, you know, I guess, um, yeah. Nancy, before I let you go, um, You've been at this for so long now, and, you know, there's a lot of ministers who haven't been in it mm-hmm. for 25 years and seen what you've seen, but mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you see as, as your primary role as a minister? You mean in today, as a, as a retired, officially retired person? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did you see was, was like the first, what, what mattered most? 
You mean through my whole ministry, in other words? Okay. Yeah. I think that because of the sequence of events, the horizontal grace leading to receiving the vertical grace of that sermon in Northern Ireland in 1975, I think my role has been a lot about teaching the churches I've served and leaders and leaders of other churches. Because as part of Alpha USA, we did a lot of training of other church leaders of all denominations about bringing people into the church. I, I really, I think the main thing was, was teaching the churches I served, its members and vestry and rectors. And I was always an assistant to a rector. I was never a rector. And any other church leaders I came in contact with, this whole thing of belonging before believing, that people, when they're touched by grace and practice, are made ripe, you know, the, the, they're made ripe, the, the, the ground is made fertile for them to hear what comes from sermons in the pulpit, but that sometimes, that the church, churches need to touch people before their regular tenders, maybe before their attendance mm-hmm. of any worship service. I learned in my work, because the Alpha Course was aimed at people who didn't go to our church, and some never came to services, some did eventually, some dropped out, uh, you know, I mean, it was a mix, but that that somehow this hearing from a wounded healer, hearing, receiving grace in practice in whatever way churches can figure out to do it. We always taught that providing food, whether it's a meal or usually a dinner but, or breakfast or whatever, um, providing food, just, just welcoming people to come in and sit down and be fed is an act of grace in practice. It, it theologically precedes the Eucharist, I think. You know, you're teaching about Eucharist when you do that. But, more fundamentally, it is grace in practice. You know there are churches in our country anyway that um, in the world who, not Episcopal necessarily, but other churches that feel, well, you, know, you really got to believe this stuff before you can belong to us. You got to believe about Jesus. You got to believe what he did is real. Yeah, whatever. You got to believe. You got to do something. Believe something. Claim something. And we we worked against that with all of those church leaders as well as Episcopal church leaders. Um, no, it's actually about belonging and accepting people before they believe, and then watching, watching belief blossom and, and open it, like, like in Eugenia. So for me, I, I was about teaching wherever I was that, that this belonging before believing grace and practice first thing is an evangelistic strategy for church leaders everywhere, and that it, in fact, was the New Testament strategy. It was Jesus' mm. strategy, definitely. Yeah. I feel very passionate about that. I was chair of the evangelism committee of the Diocese of New York when there was one. There isn't one now, but I was chair of it for a number <laughs> of years. <laughs> Never no comment, but, you know, I, I, I really was passionate about this. And it became, Ali and I, my husband and I later, he sort of um, instigated work uh, of taking Alpha into Latin America. So this, we taught this in Brazil and Mexico City and, you know, it's it's been a real passion of mine all through my ministry mm-hmm. within parish work, but also beyond with church leaders. Mm. I mean, uh, it's 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 amazing how like um, it is so true that that when you feel welcome in a place or when you feel um, invited in or 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 just even not strange, like not um, yeah not some yep. somehow different or out yep. um that yep. that that suddenly your ears are your ears are perked a little more and um and, and you lean in you know rather than sort of uh 
hold your defenses up and yeah, lean in. Um, I know is is the key term of the moment, but it's a good one. Lean in is good. Yeah, right, right. It's a different kind of lean in, but um, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I'm just thankful for you for um, for this story because I, I think the story itself actually does that itself. It it, it allows it allows people to see that um, they too have, have been, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, been given a, a wedding dress, you know, they've been given something that they, yes. um, yeah. they, they can access a time in their life when, when something undeserved happened. And, um, yeah. and then hopefully it, it, it allows us to see what the original source is you know, where that originally comes from. Yes. Yes. You know, I think because of what you just said, I think the fact that it was my mom or my dad, but in this case, it was my mom who did this parent. It, 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 it had a huge impact. It could have been an aunt taking me shopping or my sister, but it was my mom. And I think mm-hmm. as you know, that had the deep impact it did. So our, our father, God, you know, we, we, we pray our father were in heaven and it's not, I feel very strongly. The word father is really important there. It's a parental term. It's a relationship yeah. term and it's a parental right. relationship term. And I think once people feel the fatherness of God, again, there's this, the impact goes deeper than it. If it were the great teacher, you know, Joe Blow. Totally. The relationship of the giver to the receiver is very, very important. Well, thank you, Nancy. Thanks for, You're thanks for giving us the story so many years ago, but then um, for, for taking the time today, too. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. I'm déjà vu.